0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. This morning I I wanna deliver a message entitled Treasures in Jars of Clay. And the text I want to draw from is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm gonna look primarily at verses 7 to 10 but I'm going to interact with a few other verses throughout Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Here's what the word of God says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, and struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Amen. That's the Word of God. You know, there are certain, um, I didn't know there was a whole industry around packaging. Maybe some of you have worked in that industry before. I knew someone, my uncle, in fact, in Korea, owned a cardboard box factory. He built the boxes that delivered so many of the goods that people enjoyed buying. He didn't have fire insurance. One day it burned to the ground. He lost everything. But there are whole industries built around packaging. And there's certain packages that evoke positive feelings in us almost right away. Right? I mean... Some of some of you are like, is that, does he have a? Is he surveilling my house? Some of us, this is every day in front of our doorstep, right? Loads of Amazon boxes, and you get excited when you see that. Some of us order so much on Amazon, it's like Christmas. We don't even remember what what's coming. Maybe it's a, a beautifully wrapped gift, and you can't wait to unwrap it, to see what someone's given you. Maybe it's these boxes. When you're hungry, this is the greatest sight on earth: is a pizza box. Or maybe it's this, just a velvet box containing something shiny and valuable. You know, what all these things have in common is that they're containers. And the reason we get excited about the container is not because of the value of the container itself, but because it holds something that actually gets our hearts racing. The thing inside is what we want, but the container was something that was necessary to deliver it to us. Some containers uh, are really, really nice. Some companies work really hard at their packaging. Every time I get a new iPhone, I have a hard time throwing that box away. I kept dozens of them, and recently when we moved, we had to ask some hard questions about what's worth keeping and what should be thrown out, and I recycled dozens of Apple product boxes because they're so well made. You're thinking, this is too nice to throw away. But it was just a stark reminder that what I actually needed was what what was inside the box. The box itself retained very little value. Paul gives us this teaching that says that we as Christ followers are people who hold within us a treasure of such surpassing value and power that we are compared to jars of clay. Jars of clay were the plastic containers of the ancient world. They were very common, very inexpensive, very everyday containers. They were not things people treasured or prized. They were utility things. And people, even poor people, would have a number of these clay vessels in their house and they would just store all kinds of stuff. Food, um, durable goods, precious things. But the container itself was not what mattered. It wasn't anything that people would prize or treasure. And when Paul writes that that is what we are with respect to the gospel, it's a hard message to hear, especially for us today, because we happen to be living in a cultural moment where the elevation and the valuing of the self, of the individual is at such a high, it borders on worship where we are so aware of the needs, the rights, the value of the individual person, and no doubt, God sees that value. There's no denial of that in Scripture. But here in this passage, Paul is straining to find an analogy that helps us see what our value is stood next to this greater thing of value which we are so prone to undervalue in our hearts. Paul's point is not to say that we have no value, that we're worth nothing more than Tupperware to God. That's not his point at all. We do matter. We cannot stand on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. He died a horrendous death in order to purchase our pardon. God needs to offer no additional proof that we matter to him, that we have value in the eyes of God. But Paul's point is that though we matter greatly to God, we do not matter supremely in this universe. We are not the figures and the beings of central importance in this world. But that there is inside of us a surpassing treasure of such great worth that when we look truly at the value of that treasure, we appear like clay pots, like plastic Tupperware that have the privilege of holding something of immeasurable value, greater value than ours. What is this treasure that we simple jars of clay get to hold within us? Well, just one verse before the passage that I'm preaching on, here's what he says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's one of those really Christiany, churchy-sounding sentences that you just read it, and some people just instinctively go, oh. you got to really unpack the sentence to understand what an incredible thing is being said here. Do you remember in the creation account, what's written is that in the very beginning, before God got to work, Everything was dark and empty and formless and void. What was was just nothing and darkness. And into that darkness, God speaks and light enters creation. And with that light, everything gets started. It brings illumination to what was dark. It was as if there was nothing, and if it was there, we couldn't see it. And suddenly, everything comes into being and what what paul is saying is that same manner when jesus breaks into a human life it's as if he is speaking in the same power that same command as he did in creation there was nothing but dark there and suddenly into that emptiness and darkness is spoken a light that brings life and order and newness into everything He pierces the darkness of our lives before Jesus by bringing Jesus into that darkness. This is not a denigration of the human existence. It is most of all an elevation of the power and the effect that Jesus has when he truly enters a life. Not just enters the ears or the eyes, but enters the depth of a human life. The transformation, the power is enormous. What he's saying is the life before that entry is like darkness and void and the lights get switched on. This is the treasure that every true Christ follower holds in their being is that the greatest thing of value in my life is that I know Jesus Christ. And there was a time when I didn't and I remember very clearly what that life was like. Some people have a very dramatic story to tell of what that life was like before Jesus. Some, like me, just had a very meaningless, shallow, middle-class, suburban existence, content to ignore God completely and live for something else. Having no idea what I was missing, just chugging along as a mammal on this planet. And then Jesus broke even into that shallow existence, and it was like the lights had come on. In Second Corinthians four four, just a couple of verses before this, Paul says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And here's what Paul is saying there. That it's not just that the, the people who don't know Christ are closing their eyes or burying their head in the sand. They are unable to see in Christ the truth of who he is. Even when it's elucidated, even when it is, uh, is presented clearly, even if they read the books in which he is described. Until a moment where God quickens the heart of a human being and opens up that heart, a person is not able to see in Jesus who Jesus actually is. We can be Jesus adjacent for years, know a great deal of facts about him, pursue him, but until God opens the heart, there is no knowing. Others may tell us about him, present him as our hope, but there is no reality to that until we have that encounter with him ourselves. That was my story for 16 years of my life. I grew up in church. I attended hundreds of church services. I shared with you before, I read the whole Bible so that my parents would buy me an Atari game console. So I read the whole thing. I sat in so many Sunday school classes. My parents tried to model their faith as much as they could. There was no shortage of evidence in front of me pointing me towards Jesus, but he was just some dude. At times, I would hear a sermon, I would would remark, I kind of admire him, he's a good guy. I need to be a little more like him. And that was as far as it went. And then in the summer, this is a picture of me of the year I got saved. I was it's crazy to think. I was young once. And at the age of sixteen, I attended a youth a youth retreat, a camp. And that day, God said over my life, let light shine into the darkness. And here's what happened for me that day. As that light shone, he showed me the one thing I've been resisting all my life, and that is to have a really hard and honest look at me. He gave me first a picture of the darkness in my own heart. My own sin. And I won't be graphic about it, but I saw some things that had me as a high school student, on all fours, crying. It's not just running out of my nose, making a continuous string to the carpet on the floor. I couldn't stop shaking and crying. Because I saw who I really was. I had a carefully crafted story of who I believed and wanted to be. I was so angry at anyone who told me a different version of myself. But I saw that day in the face of God, in front of him, who I was, and the only thing I could do was repent. I understand why when Jesus and his disciples preached the announcing of the kingdom of God, the first thing they always said was repent. I learned that day that you cannot come to know God if you present yourself to him as someone who wants a better life or who is a victim of something else. I had to come to him as one who has sinned and is in need of forgiveness. That was the the thing that turned the key in the lock to introduce him into my life. And that day he spoke, let light shine into the darkness of this young man. And I've never been the same. I'm not perfect, but I've never been the same since he showed me who I am. I wonder if that speaks to you where you might be today. Because I don't think we can begin a relationship with God on any other terms than in a posture of true repentance. And when we actually do that there's an immense relief as the God who is holy accepts us nonetheless and he cleans away everything which is caked over our hearts and we couldn't scrub away ourselves I want to invite to the stage my friends Corey and Christina Hess they work and live up in Wisconsin and One of the things that they do to serve the Lord is they volunteer at their church leading a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And their story is such a beautiful story of the way that God does this great work and has this treasure in jars of clay. So Corey and Christina, I want to invite you to share your story with us. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. So we are Corey and Christina Hess. We um, are members of Wastosha Lakes Church up in Wisconsin, where we run a Celebrate Recovery um, ministry, and now that I've heard about the darkness, I understand why we're speaking here. We are great examples of that (laughs) darkness. (laughs) Um, So I'll get us started off. So I grew up uh, surrounded by godly families in a church that was built by my grandfather. I was always told how much smarter I was than those around me, whether it was students at school, other students, or siblings at home. I was, routinely, I was also routinely being abused physically, sexually, and emotionally by various family members. I was told that I had been given this limitless potential and simultaneously being told that I would never live up to it. Mixed in with all this was the message I was hearing that God loved me and would protect me and care for me. All I had to do was ask. I asked, but the abuse didn't stop. For whatever reason... God had also judged me a failure. The promises that he made didn't apply to me.
2: My first memory is of my parents divorcing when I was three. I remember them fighting and her packing a suitcase. My mother was caught in infidelity and they could not reconcile, and so she decided that it was better for her to leave. We only got to see my mom when it was convenient for her. I was left with a sense that I was abandoned. At this same time, between the ages of four to eight, I was also being sexually abused by an older neighborhood kid. Both of my parents struggled with chemical dependency issues. For the evils have encompassed me beyond number. My inequities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me, Psalm 40:12. After my mother left my dad, she became involved in an abusive relationship. As I had witnessed the fallout from this relationship, I decided that I would never be abused like that. This decision, mixed with unresolved angers and fears, led me to become a violent person. Her choices led me to believe everything else would always be more important than us. I was insecure but put on a mask of overconfidence. By high school, I was angry and acting out. Smoking, drinking, and getting high, I hung out mostly with guys and ended up becoming sexually involved with multiple boys that had girlfriends. Despite these issues, I was still getting good grades and never got caught, which allowed me to feel like I was doing okay. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs
1: 28:13. So as I became a teenager, my insecurities, failures, and guilt turned into anger. I was angry at my parents and myself, but mostly I was angry with God. He had broken his promises, so I rejected him. I turned to drinking and drugs. I fought and became promiscuous. I was going to find my own joy and my own purpose. Somewhere inside I always knew God was there, but I was better off without him. In my early twenties, I was living in Milwaukee, I was doing well financially and had more friends than I could keep up with. I was going to the bars every night, and I was rarely going home alone. I was living the exact life that I had convinced myself that I wanted. On one particular night, God spoke to me personally. He said, there's more to life than this. I have more planned for you. And that froze me in my tracks. For the first time since I was a child, I had doubts about the trajectory I was on. I started attending church again, but for the next five years, I was living a double life. I would spend my weeknights at the bars, sleeping around and getting high. Then every Sunday morning, I would make my weekly pilgrimage to church where I would weep violently while everybody around me worshipped. None of my friends knew Jesus, and I wasn't telling them about him. Instead, I was using them to feel better while watching them walk the road to hell.
2: A few years after high school, Corey got hired in my department at work. I was receiving a lot of attention from different guys at work, and I became, sexual, even, I became involved with, sexually with several of them, but felt like they were, things were different with Corey. I felt like he was good for me because he pushed me to be better, even though we were spending our time drinking and getting high. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Romans
1: 7.15 So I was also sleeping with multiple people at the office, and I wouldn't call Christina my girlfriend because I didn't want to give that up. That all came to an abrupt end the day I got called into HR and fired because they had discovered that I had been looking up pornography on my office computer. <laughs> that day, Christina left work early to drive me home and console me. I had treated her horribly up to that point, but she was the first person in my life that put herself on the line to come alongside me during a time of need. I began to see her differently and to take our relationship more seriously. Eventually, she started attending church with me. We moved in together and got married. We had an opportunity to move closer to my family and get help with our new baby, and it was during this period that we got more involved at church, and we got baptized together in Lake Geneva.
2: One night, during a volatile fight, I cut my hand on some broken glass and ended up in the ER. I held a lot of resentment towards Corey for this. I was desperate and didn't know what to do. I called the church, and I met with the pastor's wife. Corey and I reconciled, and I was baptized shortly thereafter in Lake Geneva. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Ephesians 4, 31. Initially, I felt a lot of peace, but I didn't grow my faith, and life wasn't perfect. I quickly went back to my bitterness and anger. I returned to old coping mechanisms, including sex. I made the conscious choice— to actively seek out people who would engage in affairs with me. In my bitterness, I blamed Corey for this choice. I spent the next eight years in denial about how this was affecting my marriage, my relationships, and the fact that this had become an addiction that I didn't have control over.
1: Christina was two weeks from giving birth to our fourth child when I looked at her phone and my world shattered. That night I was taking my kids trick-or-treating while trying to come to terms with the fact that my wife had been cheating on me for the last nine years with multiple partners. By the time my son was born, I had discovered that there were questions as to who his father was. I can't communicate the feeling of sitting in a hospital room, watching my wife give birth to a son that might or might not be mine. Oddly, it was in this scenario that God first showed me what my worth was. For the first time in my life, something that had been done to me that I knew wasn't my fault and that I didn't deserve. Up to this point, everything could be pointed back to my deeply embedded belief that I was a failure and a waste of potential. No matter what I thought of myself, nobody deserved this. I wish I could say it was faith or scripture or love for my wife that caused me to fight for my marriage, but at the end of the day, it was knowledge that my kids hung in the balance. Hosea 3.1 is where God um, tells Hosea, The Lord said to him, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, (laughs) though they turn to other gods.
2: The next few months were filled with the unraveling of both past and present lies. I wanted to be free from all the lies, but had not been able to make the choice myself. I lied even when presented with the truth. I could not stop. I wanted to lie myself out of it. I wanted to wish it away, thinking, if only. If only I had stopped, if only I hadn't gotten caught. I now know that this was and would continue to affect my marriage and my family regardless of when I stopped. Even in that, Corey pushed for us to be in counseling and didn't want us to divorce. I went to the counseling, but I wasn't being honest. She wanted me to be in a 12-step program for my sexual addiction, which I didn't believe I had. After some research, we did decide on Celebrate Recovery.
1: So I walked into my first CR meeting as a chauffeur. I was just there to make sure that Christina went. I sat in the open chair because there wasn't anything else for me to do. It was early in 2018 when God gave me my final wake-up call. While I fought for my marriage and fought to find a way to love my wife, she kept telling me, you won't be able to love me through this. (laughs) I knew that wasn't true, but how do you explain that to somebody who doesn't even know what love is? I was praying for God to give me the words to say so that I could share my heart and vision for our marriage with her. God gave me my answer. He said, you can't explain it to her because you don't have it to share. How can you ask her to trust your love when you won't trust mine? She has been adulterous in your marriage, but you have been spiritually adulterous. I had been focusing on the mistreatment and the unfairness I had endured. He was showing me the unfaithfulness, the selfishness, the drunkenness, and the hurt I had caused in others. All while I was claiming to live in Christ's name. What I hadn't understood was that Christina was right. I couldn't love her. God wasn't just showing me my sin. He was sending a message. He was saying, you claim to love me, but this is how you show it. You constantly reject me in favor of whatever carnal pleasure comes along. If that is what your love looks like, why would I help you convince Christina that you're capable of loving her? I wasn't Job in this story. I was Judas. I was willing to betray Jesus for a moment's pleasure. Instead of focusing on what had been done to me, I began working through what I had done to others. For the first time in my life, I was owning my sin.
2: At Good Friday service that year, they quoted Matthew five twenty-three, twenty-four. 24 So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I was prayed over that evening, and during that prayer, the Holy Spirit came over me for the first time. Everything wasn't perfect after that, but I had hope. My growing relationship with God is what I spent my life looking for, and what I always rejected in my efforts to be more self-righteous.
1: God is constantly convicting us and revealing new areas where we have work to do. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. However, he has also given us a framework in which to work through those issues. He has given us a true church family to walk alongside us as he fights our battles for us. It doesn't matter if you're fighting an addiction or working on a sinful habit or trying to overcome a devastating hurt. By walking into this building this morning, we're all admitting that we're at the end of ourselves, that our lives are unmanageable, and that we're ready to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. Even if the problems that brought us here look different, we are closer to being in the same place than anybody you're likely to meet anywhere else in your life. I want to thank you guys for giving us the opportunity to share. Um, We had to read it because, A, I get emotional, and B, we will be up here all day talking if we don't (laughs) limit ourselves. So thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for sharing vulnerably about things that most people um, do not share with other people and i'm grateful that as you shared those really personal details of your story the real story you're telling is the story of god in the life of a person corey something you said really rocked me that the turnaround happened when you realized you were not job but you were judas And I think that is the invitation that opens the door to God in our lives. Corey and Christina mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and it's a ministry that is not familiar to many of us, but perhaps some of you are somewhat familiar with it. It's a ministry, it's it's a group ministry, uh, that helps anyone who's feeling stuck in bondage to an addiction, a habit, a grief, a conflict that you just feel they can't break out of it. Uh, It's a a ministry that helps people find freedom in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Celebrate Recovery, the way we like to invite you to do that is meet us at the welcome table right after service. And if you or someone you know is in that situation, you want to learn more about it, we'd love to grab lunch together with you and share more details about that. There are a number of churches in our area that have Celebrate Recovery programs, and I think the best way to begin is for someone from our church who really needs that um, can go through it, and as they have that experience, they might be used of God to begin to hear at Harvest as well. It's an important ministry. I hope some of you will come join us for that lunch and learn more. In the time I have left, I just want to wrap up the, the remainder of my message I left my clicker on the chair, so guys, if you would help me out. In in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 9, Paul gives this testimony. Thank you, Faye. And he says, he pairs these things. He said, I was this, but at least I'm not that. And it's the ultimate consolation prize testimony. If you think about it, he's like, I was afflicted in every way. That means, the, the word there is, there was pressure and stress pushing down on me from every possible side. Some of us can totally relate to that feeling. And so that was what my life was like, but at least I wasn't crushed under the pressure. I was perplexed, and that's a casual word in our language today, but it is, I have absolutely no idea what to do. I was at a loss, no direction, no clue. But at least I wasn't so lost that I gave over to despair. I was persecuted and attacked by enemies at every turn. It seemed like I had no allies, only enemies. And yet, I was never forsaken. God never abandoned me and left me alone. And he says, I was struck down. Now, for some of us, that's pretty descriptive, but when Paul says it and you read his testimony, you realize what a king of understatement he is. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives a long list of the suffering and trials he endured while serving the Lord. And any one of those trials would have sorely tempted most of us to quit ministry. And he says, I was struck down the kind of punch that makes your legs buckle. But even so, I was not destroyed. What Paul is saying in these juxtapositions is that even though the clay jar of his life was cracked again and again and again in the service of Christ, the one thing he could honestly say at the end of all that was that the treasure inside him held him together And even if he couldn't say he had a trouble-free life, a pain-free life, what he could say was, God showed up every single time and preserved my life. Here's what's extraordinary about that. This is all a conviction that Paul got in hindsight. After the deliverance, after he was rescued, he was able to point to God and say, he saw me through. But he also begins this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, by saying that when he was going through it at the time, it didn't feel like victory at all. It didn't feel like rescue. It felt, here's what he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. All of this suffering happened because he happened to be the clay jar that was holding forth to the world the treasure that God breaks into the darkness of human lives with his light that he makes God known through the face of Jesus Christ, who holds the glory of God in him. That he says to the world, there is hope, there is change, there is newness in the midst of everything that you're facing, and there is forgiveness for the weight of guilt and regret and shame that you bear. The amazing thing to me is that Paul could have spared himself this agony at any moment. All he had to do was stop living this way. If you took on a job that led to your physical attack again and again, hardship, poverty, homelessness, hunger, cold, imprisonment, wouldn't you at some point hear your friends go, maybe you should get another job? Maybe you're doing something wrong. And in fact, that's one of the big reasons why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in the first place, because the people in the church at Corinth were confused. They said, Paul, all these super apostles, that, that's what they're called. In the Greek, it's hyper apostle. It cracks me up. I, I, I think of certain, certain figures in the Christian world when I hear that. Super apostle. These are not clay jars. These are enameled porcelain jars, jewel encrusted with gold trim. These are fancy containers. Nothing bad ever seems to happen to them. They don't crack. In fact, everywhere they go, they, all they, they're the DJ college of the ministry world. All I do is win. It's always up and to the right with us. No trouble, no hardship, no poverty, no lack. It's just always great. And the people of Corinth said, Paul, why do you always seem to be in trouble? Why do you always have cuts and bruises? Why are people always stoning you? How come you're in prison half the time? What are you doing wrong because these other guys are successful and you've got nothing but bad news? And Paul could have stopped that train at any moment and just gotten off and said, you're right. There's another way to do this whole thing. But he didn't. And what Paul is testifying is that I did not protect this jar of clay as my highest aim. That wasn't my goal, was to preserve the clay jar. My goal was to preserve and hold on to the treasure that I was given the privilege of containing. That was the greatest end of my life. His life's mission was not to preserve the container, but to hold fast to the treasure that lay within. That was his greatest calling. And so even though his life could have been much easier by taking another path, he refused because the treasure that he got to carry was of surpassing value, immeasurably worth more than keeping his being held together. And as he chose to preserve and hold the treasure, the treasure held him together. says in verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It's just another way of him saying, I chose to follow Jesus in the way of self-sacrifice and death to self. And as I did that, the life of Jesus poured out of me and others saw. So what I appreciate so much about Corey and Christina's story is that apart from Jesus, we know exactly how that story ends. It doesn't end with a man and a woman standing on a stage in front of a church they don't know and sharing the most intimate details of their life from a place of hope and wholeness. It doesn't end with them standing next to each other at all. I'll finish with the remarkable statement that Paul makes in verses 11 to 12. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Now listen to this, because this is what ministry is. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He said, I chose not to preserve this jar of clay, but I chose to hold fast to the treasure. And as my clay jar is getting wrecked, at least the life of Jesus is flowing out of me into you. What is your greatest treasure? What do you spend the most energy And time and resources preserving, protecting, improving, beautifying. What is that treasure that you most hold dear? Could it be that sometimes we slip into treasuring the container itself above all things? Could it be that when your clay jar is finally cracked open, the real treasure will be revealed? For those who have come to see in the face of Jesus, forgiveness for sin, hope out of despair and a newness of life, he becomes forever the greatest treasure. We're unable to hold other toxic things within because the treasure we hold is the defining story of our existence. The world teaches us that unforgiveness is a way to guarantee justice. But it's not. It's a way to guarantee self-death, the wrong kind. The treasure of Jesus in us is the most valuable thing about our lives. I want to honor those here, especially those who have served in ministry, who have led, who have joined Paul in this same testimony If you're a small group leader at our church, let's just admit it. It's not an easy job, is it? (laughs) Holding a group together, hoping that people will come, wanting them to really open up, trying to forge community. And yet week after week after week, I've watched leaders in our church serve the Lord, be willing to die to self, so that maybe through that little measure of sacrifice, someone else will see the life of Jesus in them. I've seen elders stay until 11, 12, working through things that matter to the life of our church. Even the elders who have to get up at 4 the next morning for work. And it moves me deeply when I see that because the life of Jesus also bursts out of that holding of the death of Jesus. Harvest, I want to call you to break free from the world's obsession with preserving and honoring and loving the clay jar as the highest aim. It seems to be all the rage. Take care of you. You matter supremely. You have all the rights. You deserve everything. This is the message of our broken world is that you are the everything in your story. And the good news of Jesus Christ is, thank God that is never going to be true. There is a much greater story than that. And when you find yourself in that story, through the path of repentance, it will be like light burst into your darkness, and you will never be the same. If you're in the midst of struggling now and you're tempted to give up, I urge you, take your eyes off the jar that is cracking and fix your eyes on the treasure of Jesus deposited in you. It's worth not giving up because he will hold you together. I want to invite you just to Um, Take a moment as the the band comes back up. I don't think people today want to hear that they are jars of clay. I don't really enjoy saying it. But I would say that um, lately, I'm very reminded that that's what I am. And I'm grateful that this container isn't all that I am. It's it's not all that you are either. What is your greatest treasure? What do you hold inside that is of immeasurable value? That thing for which you would even give up your life just to hold? I hope that if you have been with us for some time and you have never quite seen in Jesus who it is that we're describing, that someday, somehow, He will lead you to see Him. Until then, it's okay. Just keep being here with us. I I love that you are. And if it was many years ago that you saw Jesus, as your savior, as the forgiver of your sins. Can I invite you to return to him in a posture of humility, not as Job, but as Judas, who knowing what is right has often chosen what is wrong. Knowing who is king, you've chosen to rule your own life instead. Can I invite you to return to the savior You once knew in a fresh posture of humility and repentance. So, I want to give you just a moment to respond to God in your own way, in your own voice. And then I'll pray for us and we'll close with a song. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you and your word would remain with us. That anything that has been spoken in flesh, just words of people, would fade away and the things you yourself are saying in this room today would burrow themselves into the souls and the spirits of each person here. Grab onto us in a way that doesn't let go. Show your face to each person in this church. Be light that pierces into the darkness. And God, we just come together before you, admitting that while we have been sinned against, While we have been damaged and broken and victimized, we also stand before you as sinners. And we ask you to receive us as we repent. Thank you for mercy. Thank you that even before we experience your justice, we can experience your mercy and grace. Be our treasure and free us from the idolatry of these jars of clay. In the name of Jesus, amen. Receive the good news that God changes people. He breaks into human lives and makes everything new. May the God who once broke into so many of our lives continue to pierce the darkness again and again. If you find yourself today afflicted and perplexed, persecuted, knocked down, may you find rescue by treasuring Jesus above your own jar of clay. Trust him to hold you together. You hold on to him. Now be blessed. In the name of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.